You're listening to a selection of stories from this week's Morning Ireland. And Italy are the European football champions for the first time since 1968. They beat England 3-2 on penalties after the game ended 1-1 after 105 minutes. Cue massive celebrations across Italy. We'll be hearing from Rome after eight. We're going to London now to join journalist Vincent McAvinney, who watched the match with fans in East London. And Vincent, it was quite a battle for Italy to get that equaliser in the 67th minute was there belief among the Italians from that moment where you were well it was uh, the English fans were pretty delighted when they got that very early goal in the second minute uh, and they were pretty jubilant and there was a real shift in the mood when that equaliser went in uh, and from that point on Italian fans felt a little bit more confident and I think when they knew that it was going to go to penalties they felt very confident given the history of England with penalties. I did speak to some fans afterwards. They were being very muted though in their celebrations. There really were not very many Italian fans in London last night and this couple had only just moved from Milan and they'd actually been told by Italian friends stay at home and watch it but they had watched it in a pub in East London but they had at one point decided to wipe off their Italian flag sadly from their faces because there had been a bit of aggression. Here's what they had to say about the night. Very exciting, but we can't be too happy. That's how it feels. Yeah. And when it went to, you know, so quickly 1-0 up, what was it like? Was it very tense for the rest of the match? It was very tense, yes. And we couldn't exactly be happy because we were in a pub, obviously. So. And for you, what's it been like this evening? Oh, it's amazing, man. Just, uh, I mean, it's been like 40, 50 years since St. Helens won the European Championship. Amazing, man. Really and amazing. watching you here in London, what was that been like? Oh, I mean, <laughs> this is football's home, you know. It's, uh, I mean, they, they deserved it. They, they play a special game, really full of uh, passion. But, uh, you know, that's how penalties go, man. And winning on um, penalties, what was that like? Uh, that's a lottery. I was tough, you know, but, uh, I mean, it was a fair game. Very tough. Both teams, you know, play for the victory. Then, uh, fortunate, you know, penalties are a lottery. You know, just a bit of luck, a bit of experience, and uh, in the end, I think Italy deserved it. But England can have a good run at the World Cup. They have a very good team, very young, uh, talented players. Absolutely. And the World Cup is certainly being mentioned next. How did the England fans take the defeat, Vincent? Well, in the fan zone that I was in, I've got to say, there were a couple of people who were pretty angry and got out of there as quickly as possible. But many fans stuck around uh, and many that I spoke to were making that point that this is a team that's gone further than anyone expected. It is a very new generation. They're very inexperienced compared to some of the Italian players. But that the World Cup isn't that far away uh, and that this probably won't be a one-off, that England could go further in that. And they were really full of praise. Particularly, I think, it shows a bit of a change, you know, for Gareth Southgate, how attacked he was after Euro 96 for not getting that penalty, the way that he was treated in the press. If you look at the English papers, 
workers today, they are much kinder to this team. Many people publicly praising them, and particularly those three players who sadly lost their penalties. A lot of people last night were saying that they worried for them, that they were very sad for them. And sadly, we have seen overnight racist abuse being directed by them and strong statements being put out by the FA. But here's what many fans had to say. They think that, you know, When it did look like it was going to England, you could just feel the absolute atmosphere crash. Uh, But many of them think that they did the best that they could. Feels pretty bad. Losing penalties is always going to be hard to take. We kind of sat back too much, especially second half. We invited them on, and that's always going to lead to bad news at the end of the day. We've done a really, really good job, uh, and it was just like it's just hurtful that right at the last hurdle we let it go. But this is the furthest we've gone in so long, so like, I'm still proud. Like I'm really happy, like for how far we've come. Oh, devastating! I can't put into words how I feel, but it's it's a shock. Like in the extra time, I thought we could have had it, but sadly, when it went to penalty shootouts, we didn't bit gutted but it was an incredibly invigorating game there was so much energy in the room and we played very very well just happy to be in the finals i think it was like 50 50 around here like some people are against the guys some people are for my personal opinion is that they've got to the final i'm all for them they've done so well to get this far i feel we need to support the boys i think this team will like inspire a nation so Forget about football, they'll bring everyone together. England never went on penalties, um, so I was very nervous to see them do that. Um, and it is quite upsetting, but I kind of knew that Italy would win in that situation. Gareth Southgate can be completely proud of himself for bringing England to where they are now. England can walk home in absolute, you know, they, they, we can be so proud of them. They've done effectively the impossible. They put on a performance. They were the best. They were the best team out there. They did us so proud. Like I, I could not be prouder of being an English person today. I had really, really high hopes that we were going to win. Um, penalty shootout is is anybody's game. To be fair, we've got this far. As much as I'm upset, I'm still very proud. Roll on the World Cup. Well, put it this way. 2076 we're gonna win it <laughs> some english fans there talking to vincent mcavinney in east london and vincent uh, off the pitch though and and very sad listening to you talking about how some italians were wary of going to watch the the match in a public place because they were a little bit afraid and there was some trouble before the game was there any visible street violence afterwards Yeah, there was some trouble before the game, particularly in the Leicester Square uh, and Trafalgar Square area. And I've got to say, in the in the afternoon ahead, I saw I was at King's Cross, which was one of the main stations. There were a lot of people, despite having told really not to come into London, piling in off the trains. And that is where people that kind of don't know London particularly well will tend to congregate: Leicester Square, uh, Trafalgar Square, that kind of area. There was a fan zone at Trafalgar Square that was ticketed, but there was an attempt to break in by some fans, and so riot police had to be deployed there was a bit of a skirmish in leicester square with people fighting there was throwing of bottles destruction of property so it was all very sad to see later on in the evening uh 
There was a heavy rain, which of course is the policeman's friend, uh, but riot police were deployed in Leicester Square, and as well, it has to be said, trouble quite shockingly at Wembley itself. There were fans able to breach the perimeter uh, and get into the stadium itself without tickets. Uh, there's reports from play people that went that people were tailgating them in as well. So there are real questions to ask when Britain has suffered a number of terror attacks in recent years, and we've just had a report into the Ariana Grande uh, concert bombing in which it said that venues need to reflect on their plans and you would think such a big occasion as the Euros, it's quite crazy that people without tickets were even able to get that close to the stadium uh, not you know, not even just get inside but to be able to get into with 100 metres if they hadn't had a ticket, it was very easy given the design of Wembley to keep them further back, so there are serious questions about the security from the stadium and the Met Police this morning Okay, Vincent McAvinney in London, thank you very much indeed There's been widespread opposition to a proposal by the British government to ban all prosecutions of troubles-related killings and other crimes. This would mean there will be no future prosecutions of former British soldiers and police officers or Republican and Loyalist paramilitaries for crimes before the Good Friday Agreement and an end to all legacy inquests and civil cases. Most of the over 3,000 killings during the Troubles remain unsolved. The British Prime Minister Boris Johnson told the House of Commons that the plan was to enable the province of Northern Ireland to draw a line under the Troubles, to enable the people of Northern Ireland to move forward. The Taoiseach said the proposals were wrong for many, many reasons and called on the UK government to honour the Stormont House Agreement. Our reporter Una Kelly has been speaking to some family members of people who were killed during the Troubles. It begins with Kathleen Gillespie, whose husband Patsy died in 1990 after he was strapped into a car and forced to drive an IRA car bomb into a British Army checkpoint. I was flabbergasted. I can't believe that there's, there's such a suggestion on the table, you know, uh, over, across the board amnesty. That's really what they're saying. And I think it's ridiculous because where is the justice not for the victims if the perpetrators are being told they're not going to get prosecuted ever? The men who murdered my husband are still out there walking the streets. They were never sentenced. They were never prosecuted. I would like to see the whole thing being investigated, them paying for their crime. Kathleen, Boris Johnson says that this legislation will help people in Northern Ireland draw a line under the Troubles. <laughs> he means brush it all under the carpet. Is that what, That's what he's saying. You know, I draw a line, I don't know. I won't draw a line. There are too many people who will... Uh, object to this decision. Too many people will be hurt because of it. Oh, we just feel cheated. And that leaves us dangling. You know, it just means that it, it makes us feel uh, in some way that we're not worth bothering about. We're in fear in some way that we won't worry if, if they don't try to look for justice. Uh, it just makes you feel that we've been let down. What would your message be to the British government? Think about how they would feel if it happened to them. Personally, each one personally. Think about how they would feel if they had gone through something like I went through. My name is John Joseph Taggart. My father was murdered on the 9th of August 1971 in Balmurphy Massacre. I also lost my brother, 
who was murdered by the IRA uh, two years later. He was age 15. Only with a scrap of sheer anger uh, that after all that we've been through, after the campaigning for 50 years and find out that our loved ones were declared entirely innocent. Uh, it's, and then you have uh, the British government uh, just coming out with a proposal to stop us in the tracks of, of any any further of progressing our campaign for truth and justice. Uh, it, it absolutely the disgraceful act by the British government. If this legislation goes ahead, some families will not be able to get an inquest such as your family did. What do you make of that? Uh, my heart goes out to them because I, I can feel for these families because I know uh, from personal experience of uh, what you go through, what you have to do, uh, the sacrifices you make uh, throughout your journey for uh, trying to get truth and justice. My name is Julie Hambleton. I'm one of the campaigners for Justice for the 21, which is a group of families of those who were murdered in the Birmingham pub bombings in 1974. One of the victims that was murdered was my sister, Maxine Hambleton. Julie, how did you feel when you heard the news about the proposed legislation? Sick. Incandescent with rage. It is something that we never thought would be possible in a country that claims to have given the Western civilised world democracy. But it's all right for terrorists to kill as many people as they like because the, co- the government will allow them to walk free. <laughs> who, who, in their right mind, would agree to such legislation? Not only... Uh, being proposed but being implemented. The UK government says it hopes this legislation will help people move past the troubles. What do you think of that? It's a load of rubbish. They have no concept of what reconciliation and what any kind of peace to families like ours looks like because they live in a Westminster bubble. Julie Hamilton, John Taggart and before that Kathleen Gillespie speaking with our reporter Una Kelly. Baroness Nula O'Lone is a former police ombudsman in Northern Ireland and she's with us now. Nula O'Lone, uh, good morning. Thanks for taking our call today. Good morning. Are you surprised by this proposal? I had heard, we had all heard that there were proposals for an amnesty. I had not anticipated that not only would there be uh, as proposed amnesty in effect, but also uh, a complete end to all legacy inquests and uh, all civil actions in respect of damage and injuries suffered during the troubles for, for the relatives of those who died. It's a terrible, terrible betrayal of the victims and their families. And they have spoken, I think, very eloquently on, on your program there. I've actually heard one person welcome it, and that's uh, Lord Dannett, who's former head of the British Army. Yes. I haven't heard anybody else when welcome it. It's a denial of justice, and it's a denial of justice in all its forms. You know, Boris, if... 
Sorry, sorry Malone, Boris Johnson, just just on that point uh, about the army, Boris Johnson w- was very clear in the House of Commons yesterday. He said, the sad fact remains that there are many members of the armed services who continue to face the threat of vexatious prosecutions well into their 70s, 80s and later, and we're finally bringing forward a solution to this problem to enable the province of Northern Ireland to draw a line under the troubles. In your view, is the British government's focus purely on the British army? No, I think it's uh, it's much wider than that. I think it's on the whole cost of answering the questions which people legitimately have as, you know, citizens here in Ireland and in the United Kingdom and indeed elsewhere. Um, I think it's a very clear breach of our international legal obligations. But, but not that, not just that. You know, under the Human Rights Act, they brought human rights home. That was what they said in 1998. And that, that gives people the right to a timely and effective investigation of cases, particularly where there's a suspicion of state agents being involved in a death. And under these proposals, they'd be deprived of all their legal rights. I, I find it astonishing. And if I can give you two examples. One, we've just heard about Ballymurphy inquests. Yes. So we can think back to Bloody Sunday, we can think about Ballymurphy where... The story which was told was not the true story, and innocent people died. But then think, too, I'm involved with something called the Canova investigation. Uh, That's the investigation of the state agent known as State Knife. Um, It's also investigating uh, the deaths of three police officers, uh, the deaths of a lady called Jean Campbell-Smith, who died very early in the troubles. Now, that investigation has put to the Director of Public Prosecutions over 28 files which in respect of which there has been no direction no decision now those 28 files relate to 17 murders and 12 abductions which have been investigated now the, the files began to arrive with the director of public prosecutions in 2019 and there still is no answer from the director of public prosecutions this paper by the government says that only nine people have been prosecuted. But the reason is that they're not being prosecuted is that they have stopped prosecuting them. Yes. And they've stopped making decisions to prosecute so that we, it's not a question that the evidence is not there. In some cases, I grant you very few, the evidence is there. But if you look at those cases alone, Operation Canova has given the Director of Public Prosecutions over 50,000 pages of evidence. 2,000 new evidential statements have been secured. There is information to be had out there, and it may or may not lead to a trial, but we need to ensure that our country is built on the rule of law and that we don't don't deny the rule of law and deny people the rights that they have in law. It is profoundly important. If the British government wants to introduce a statute of limitations, even against a lot of opposition, realistically, can they be stopped? I think it's going to be profoundly difficult in Parliament. I think it's interesting that immediately there's a response from the victims of the Birmingham pub bombing, so it's not just Northern Ireland that this will apply to. I think that the Irish government's response is is predictable. It's only a few weeks since the government came out of a joint meeting and said that they were going to implement the Stormont House Agreement. And the Stormont House Agreement provides for not only uh, truth recovery, but also for investigation. Uh, The government have the power in the House of Commons 
to do this because of their majority. Whether it would pass through Parliament, though, whether all parliamentarians would be prepared to say Britain no longer stands by the rule of law insofar as Northern Ireland is concerned, I would hope that there'd be more integrity in Parliament. Baroness Nulo Lone, former police ombudsman in Northern Ireland, thank you for speaking to us. Now, last night, the South African president, Cyril Ramaphosa, addressed the nation. He was speaking after days of violence and looting that's left at least six people dead and hundreds arrested. The violence started after former President Jacob Zuma was jailed for 15 months for failing to attend an inquiry into accusations of massive corruption during his nine-year presidency. In last night's televised address, Mr Ramaphosa condemned the acts of violence. I address you this evening, South Africans, with a heavy heart. Over the past few days and nights, there have been acts of public violence of a kind rarely seen in the history of our democracy. Property has been vandalized and destroyed. Shops have been looted. Law-abiding citizens have been threatened and intimidated. Workers are scared that they may not be able to return to work. People have died. At this hour, there are several families in our country that are in deep mourning. I'm joined now by Sophie Mokena, foreign editor for the South African Broadcasting Corporation. Sophie, good morning. Thank you for joining us. The unrest started over the jailing of Jacob Zuma. It started in his home province of KwaZulu-Natal, but it has escalated and broadened. We heard from the president there describing what's going on on the streets. Can you give us uh, some further information about that violence and how it has now spread? Well, of course, as you have pointed out, the former South African president uh, was supposed to have appeared before a commission that was established uh, two years ago to investigate allegations of corruption and maladministration and influence business people have on the president himself. So there were many people who went to the commission and uh, some of them implicated the president. The chair wanted the president to come and uh, respond in terms of those allegations when he was the president of South Africa. He went, but when he was supposed to go for the second time, then he refused, saying that the chair of the commission uh, is conflicted and he's not prepared to appear before him. And the commission took him to the highest court in the land, the constitutional court, arguing that as a former head of state, you should know better that you have to respect the laws of the country because a judicial commission of inquiry has powers to subpoena and also to recommend prosecutions. He didn't go to the constitutional court to respond because his argument was that he has already lodged the case at the lower court. And then the constitutional court ruled against him and they sentenced him to 15 years in, uh, 15 months, 15 months imprisonment. And uh, there were people who were against that, his supporters. And there was a to and fro until he handed himself to the police and was taken to custody. Mm -hmm. And uh, the people who supported him started mobilizing 
and the whole thing got out of hand because of the challenges this country is facing. Unemployment, almost 70% young people are not employed. Women are not employed. The COVID-19 impact in terms of job losses, people are at home. So that led to people taking the law into their hands. And when there are these kind of protests, clearly there will be criminal elements and the looting started. Because of hunger, poverty, children are at home, uh, it's holiday, the country is under lockdown, uh, the psyche of the nation is at a different level for almost two years. Because of COVID-19, people have been losing jobs. Mm-hmm. This has led to what we see now. And Sophie, the, the president has promised a crackdown, troops being deployed. But will the deployment of troops, will that further increase and add to the tensions that are already there? will add to the tension because in South Africa, remember where we come from, uh, issues of safety and security and security apparatus, their behavior is always monitored because we're still dealing with the wounds of the past where the apartheid government used to unleash the security uh, establishment to deal with Africans when they were protesting. And majority of these people who are in the streets, who are looting, are from townships and are Africans. And therefore, it will, it depends on how they will behave. This might help. This might aggravate a situation. It will depend on the behavior of these uh, uh, troops in the street. These troops are not supposed to to, to fight with the protesters or the looters. They are supposed to support the police because they are the ones who have been trained and empowered to deal with crowd control and, and rioting. But the defense force, they are not trained to deal with crowds and rioting. They are dealt, they are trained to defend the country. It is a war. I mean, they have firepower. It's not your rubber bullets. They have ammunition, life ammunition. Therefore, it is a very delicate situation that we hope that uh, the, 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 the defense force itself, the military, they will be able to manage uh, the situation so that it doesn't get out of it. Because they have guns. It's not rubber bullets. It is life ammunition. So anything can go wrong. But the sad thing is that now the other communities have taken the law into their hands. Now you see white communities and Indians fighting with blacks while they are protecting their own uh, uh, resources and their properties. And this might lead to more tension because it is beginning to take a racial tension. Sophie, thank you very much for joining us on Morning Ireland. Sophie McKenna there, foreign editor for the South African Broadcasting Corporation. Flooding has now killed at least 80 people in Germany and 11 people in Belgium. Many more, as you probably know, are missing as rising water caused several houses to collapse. Sebastian Weiermann is a local journalist in Wuppertal in North Rhine-Westphalia, one of the affected regions in Germany, and he described what he saw yesterday. I saw the river Wupper. Normally it's um, a little river left and right. There are a lot of buildings and um, today it um, has a very high um, high water standing and uh, streets uh, along the river were overflowed. Um, people from the fire department and they pumped up um, 
water from houses that were floated. The region of Eiffel, um, there were a lot of houses completely destroyed. There are now a lot of people still missing. And that was local journalist Sebastian Weierman. Journalist Kate Brady joins us now from Ger- from Germany. Kate, the death toll continues to rise and it's rising pretty quickly. It is indeed. And local authorities already this morning have said that they do fear that it is going to continue to rise. There's also more fears that there could be even more flooding before the weekend as well. We already saw some more rainfall, heavy rainfall um, in some of those areas that have already been affected by flooding last night, but also in more southwestern regions as well. Um, in one area near the Eiffel um, area, a dam there has all, is already starting to overflow, so surrounding areas have been evacuated over fears that there could be more flooding there. Um, so many people have been taken to hotels, uh, to local sports centres, community centres, uh, to try and seek shelter there where they're safer away from their homes. How widespread is this damage? It is extremely widespread and again local authorities have said it's only in the coming days that we'll really be able to see the true extent of the damage that's been done. These are huge areas uh, running through North Rhine-Westphalia, Rhineland-Palatinate and now even further south now in Baden-Württemberg we're seeing more uh, areas as well. Of course people are already asking questions, locals about their homes, about their businesses, um, about what that means in terms of insurance, whether or not they're even going to be covered. But um, Angela Merkel, of course, uh, was yesterday visiting U.S. President uh, Joe Biden. Uh, she said not only did she offer her con- send her condolences to those who have been affected by the floods, but said that the state would be supporting people who have been affected by these floods in whatever way they can. And she said as well that she had already been in touch with the finance minister, Olaf Scholz, as well. How unusual is what's been happening? Um, it is unusual. Both uh, authorities and uh, environmental experts here have been saying that this kind of rain um, is only really ever expected uh, in the winter. Um, but of course, like many other regions around uh, Europe as well, we've seen um, a lot of dry spells in Germany recently. Um, so that's then obviously been followed by a lot of rain. And sometimes it's just obviously where this results in this kind of flooding where there is simply nowhere for this water to go. And we know as well, we've known for decades more than a century now of course when uh, the temperature is warmer that means that there's also more moisture in the air so more chance of rain so um, they have been experts here have been warning that this is yet another example of the extreme weather that we can expect to see more of and even the North Rhine-Westphalia state premier um, Armin Laschet who's also the Conservative Chancellor candidate who's vying to um, fill Merkel's shoes after September's elections, he visited one of the worst hit areas yesterday and he too blamed this flooding on climate change and said that this was certainly a sign that Germany needs to speed up its climate protection measures. And you were saying the fear is that further flooding could be on the way. That is the fear at the moment. Um, some areas it seems that the worst of the rain has eased um, but there are still concerns that we're going to see more rain in those, especially in those western areas, um, into the weekend, even uh, tonight as well. Journalist Kate Brady, thank you for joining us on the line. We were talking to Fergal and Paul earlier about those laws passed in the Dáil late last night to allow pubs and restaurants to reopen sometime next week or the week after for people who can prove they're immune to the virus and their children. 
While Neffet were warning about the increasing spread of the virus and advice from the chief medical officer that it would be safer for children not to mix indoors in pubs and restaurants. Sligo restaurateur Anthony Gray says he's concerned about the mixed messaging coming from the government and Neffet. He spoke to our reporter Amy Neerida. I probably disagree with them, uh, to be totally honest with you. Um, we have an awful lot of families that come to Sligo and they all have young families and they come to holiday. I think it's, uh, it's just a bit bizarre, to be totally honest with you. How damaging would it be for your business if those families were to pull out of reservations and things at this stage? Yeah, well, it, it'll definitely affect us because like, we have a lot of, of bookings for five to six because you're only allowed six at the table. They're for mostly families and I just don't get it. I don't know where this came from all of a sudden. Will you be allowing children into your restaurant either way? Absolutely. If they come to the door and they follow the correct guidelines, well, then they'll be allowed into the restaurant. Amy also spoke to Louise Bayliss about her reaction to Dr Houlihan's advice. Louise is a lone parent and founder of campaign group Spark Ireland, single parents acting for rights of kids. I would love to be able to go into a restaurant with my daughter. I don't have a partner, I'm a lone parent, and I would love to go and bring her for a meal. But with those comments now, I would be afraid of... um, public outlash at her that I shouldn't be bringing her in and it's that confusing message that really upsets people so I would be very concerned about that um if it's not safe for her to come into a restaurant with me how next month in September will you know in the end of August or September will it be safe for children to go into a classroom with teachers and 30 other pupils and hopefully the message is yes they are allowed to be in school but then if they are allowed in school why is it not safe them to be in a restaurant Professor Klina Mikialik is an infectious diseases and internal medicine physician at St. James's Hospital. Uh, Professor Mikialik, good morning. Thanks for taking our call again this morning. Good morning. Parents could be forgiven for being a bit confused now. What do you think? So I suppose one of the ways to, to think about it is what I would do with my own kids. And I have to say I agree with, with Tony Hoolan and even before he came out, um, stating that I wouldn't have been planning to bring them to eat indoors. Um, you know, it, it's just not safe enough at the moment uh, for me to, to consider bringing them in because I'm going to try and minimise their risk of catching COVID. It's, it's difficult because the government obviously have to balance, you know, the needs of the restaurateurs to make a living and the needs of the economy um, against what is the absolute safest thing for health. But indoor dining, it's an indoor environment. We haven't really done anything uh, hugely significant in terms of improving the ventilation and monitoring the ventilation in restaurants. And you can't wear masks while you're eating or drinking. So it's not the safest environment, unfortunately. And that question by Louise about children going back into schools in a few weeks' time when they can't attend indoor summer camps and the chief medical officer doesn't believe it's safe for them to go into pubs and restaurants, what do you think? It's worrying. I mean, I think, you know, we've seen a lot of, of Delta spreading. We know the kids don't get severely, uh, most kids don't get severely unwell with COVID and don't end up in ICU in the same way that older adults may, but they certainly can get very sick and a proportion of them will get long COVID. Um, so I really think we need to start now about thinking how are we going to get schools as safe as possible come September. So masks in secondary schools, we've been doing that for a while, that works. We, I think we should keep doing that. But I think we really need to think about significantly improving ventilation in schools that's something that we can do that doesn't have an impact on the students um you know putting in carbon dioxide monitors making sure that the ventilation is as good as we can get it in the schools that'll require building work that needs to be done now and we also probably need to reconsider primary school children wearing masks half past eight we'll get to news headlines shortly is delta changing uh, professor mccallick what's known about the spread of the virus among among and by children and are they getting any sicker as a result 
So as far as I have heard, and I'm not a paediatrician, so there's a caveat, I don't work with, with children directly, but as far I haven't heard um, reports of children getting much sicker with Delta than they were getting with the other variants, but it definitely spreads more easily um, and children are not vaccinated. So I think we will expect to see much higher rates of infection in children with Delta um, if we don't address those other measures like ventilation and mask wearing. But are adults and unvaccinated adults and perhaps uh, vulnerable adults who have been either partially or fully vaccinated any more likely to pick up the disease now that it's Delta from children than they were before? So it's, I mean, the virus itself is stickier. It's almost like if you're thinking about, you know, those little seeds that stick to your clothes when you're out playing. I'm thinking about kids now, my kids coming in with seeds. It, it's just stickier, so it's much more likely to stick to somebody. So children are no different from adults, um, but, but the the delta is just stickier so if you have the same amount of contact that you would have had with the original variant delta is much more likely to to be transmitted from that same contact so it's not specific to children um but yes people are more likely to get covid with the delta variant there's a proposal for vaccines to be extended to under 18s to under 16s perhaps in the autumn what do you think so I think that's a really sensible measure um, and obviously there's a lot of, of very heated debate about it. Everybody wants to do the right thing for kids. Hopefully, you know, kids that are vaccinated now are looking at 80 years of life ahead of them. So they have a long time to develop side effects if any are going to develop. Um, but I think weighing up the risks and benefits, weighing up what we know about the vaccines, weighing up the risk of long COVID in children, I certainly personally would be keen to get my kids vaccinated as soon as it becomes available. And I think in terms of reducing the circulation of, of the virus that causes COVID, in the community, I think we'll have to consider vaccinating kids as part of that plan in order to, to eliminate the spread of it in the community. Professor Cleanly Kelly, thank you for speaking to us again. The leader of the opposition in Belarus, Svetlana Tikhanovskaya, will arrive in Ireland later this morning. It's a special trip for her. She regards this country as a second home, having spent much of her teenage years in County Tipperary as part of the programme to help those affected by the Chernobyl nuclear disaster of 1986. She is on the line now. Svetlana, you're very welcome to the programme. It's good to have you on the phone again talking to us. And this trip... You'll be having political meetings, but is it also a very personal trip for you? Oh, absolutely. It's, uh, you know, I'm so uh, grateful to this opportunity to visit Ireland. The last time I visited your country was 17 years ago, and I'm so waiting uh, to visit uh, Henry Dean, my host family, his wife. You know, I'm so fascinated with this opportunity. What memories stand out for you from that time with Henry Dean and his family in Tipperary? Uh, you know, my uh, most important impression was about people, that they were so happy uh, in their country. And of course, so as I was a child and I tried and saw many things for the first time in my life, uh, so it, it's very important memories. But of course, people are very kind, very happy, and I felt how people wanted to give uh, a lot of kindness to those children who uh, came to the country to have rest. 
And one of our other programmes on RTE spoke to Henry Dean back around the time of the election in Belarus. And he said that he remembered you very much as an intelligent, fun-loving, outgoing teenager. And he said you were never afraid to speak out about the political situation in Belarus. And perhaps then he wasn't terribly surprised about your electoral success and your entrance into politics you know uh, i think that all the host families uh, have also good memories about the children they hosted so <laughs> you know we have very good relationship with henry dean and uh, you know i i doubt he could say something other <laughs> <laughs> and tell us about nokshagauna hill what are your memories oh. from there particularly Nokchigano Hill is uh, a hill of uh, happiness, a hill of love, where Henry Dean brought all the children that visited his uh, family, and we always uh, made picnics there and just enjoyed uh, the views of uh, uh, wonderful Ireland. And, you know, it's the place where we had a lot of fun, and, uh, yeah, Nokchigano Hill is a very remarkable place for me and for all the children who came to Dean's did you ever think, Svetlana, that you would be returning to Ireland as your country's leading politician? Oh, of course not. You know, I was sure that one day I will come back and, uh, uh, you know, to visit Henry and his family. But for, of course, I couldn't imagine that I will uh, come there uh, alongside with uh, political meetings. Yes, and you, and you were plunged into politics after your husband was arrested and jailed and you replaced him in the election race, which the West agrees that you won, even though Lukashenko claimed victory. What is happening to your husband now? Uh, my husband is in prison for more than one year already and now he's having his so-called uh, trial this trial is closed and um, going on inside prison uh, you know regime is so afraid uh, for people to see those strong and unbroken people who are behind the bars that they uh, don't allow no relatives no uh, journalists inside to listen to uh, my husband and uh, other uh, imprisoned people how long do you expect him to remain in prison for you know, we can't uh, prognose anything, but uh, I have to say that people in Belarus are continue to fight uh, and uh, uh, the whole international community are standing with Belarusians for not let uh, all those people who are uh, political prisoners to stay a uh, long time in prison. Our task is to everything uh, to release them as soon as possible. I can't imagine how difficult that is for you and for your young children. Are you able to have any contact with him? You know, in Belarus, uh, relatives are not allowed to communicate to prisoners, nor through the phone or personal visits. Uh, people can communicate only through the lawyers. And uh, moreover, um, you know, all the meetings with lawyer are being recorded, so you just can't uh, can pass on the personal things about uh, children, about parents, uh, you know, and so on. 
I spoke to you, Svetlana, a couple of months ago on this programme after that story which made global headlines, the hijacking of the Ryanair flight, forced to land in Minsk, the arrest of Roman Protasevich and Sofia Sapega, both of whom you know. Um, after that, the EU imposed sanctions on Belarus. Have they had much impact on weakening the Lukashenko regime? No, of course, Lukashenko's regime is weakening and sanctions uh, is uh, the only part uh, of uh, all the pressure uh, that uh, are imposed uh, on Lukashenko's regime inside country and outside country. But of course, um, uh, the impact of sanctions is a little bit prolonged and we uh, can see results maybe in, 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 in long term. So but what to do now then? What, what else can you know, be done more immediately? You know, sanctions, uh, I have to say sanctions is not a silver bullet, but sanctions uh, uh, could help to release political prisoners and to make this regime to start dialogue with the civil society. Uh, what else can be done? You know, just to follow this situation to... If uh, necessary, if there will be no, if there is no answer from the regime uh, to impose new sanctions to hit the regime as much as uh, as it is possible, and uh, isolate this regime politically and economically, and to be consistent in your policy. If Lukashenko's regime will try to trade with political prisoners, uh, don't allow him to do this. Just we are sure that uh, our path to democracy can be a success story this time. But we, of course, need, uh, you know, joint position of uh, all the democratic countries. And you'll be meeting various representatives from the Irish government, including Simon Coveney, when you're here. What are you hoping for from those meetings? Of course, we are going to discuss the uh, situation in Belarus and uh, I will come first of all with the words of gratitude to Ireland that uh, they, uh, they voice is uh, rather strong on the political arena and uh, just to i'm grateful for uh, everything they are doing that they are uh, helping to civil society that they joined all the sanctions uh, uh, of european union and uh, of course we uh, i hope that uh, i will see ceo of ryanair to discuss uh, uh, ryanair case hijacking yes do you believe that you will return to Belarus one day? Of course, of course I will return. This is my motherland and uh, I adore my country. And, you know, regime is not endless. And uh, it will, uh, you know, people will prevail. People uh, uh, strive for democratic changes, for freedom, for safeness will prevail one day. For sure I will. Enjoy your trip to Ireland, Svetlana. I hope you get to spend some time at Nakshagauna Hill. Uh, thank you so much for joining us this morning from Vilnius. Svetlana Tikhanovskaya getting ready to, to fly to Ireland for a series of meetings over the next couple of days. Research reveals it can take a woman over 20 years and it can cost over €100,000 to escape an abusive relationship. The new report from Safe Ireland and NUI Galway assesses for the first time the indicative economic and social costs of domestic violence to women survivors in Ireland. The research doesn't quantify the costs of domestic violence services or housing, both major costs to the state. Mary McDermott is CEO of Safe Ireland. Good morning, Mary. 
Good morning, Mary. 20 years, it, it's, it's a long time to survive in an abusive relationship. What are the stages along the way before a woman can finally escape? Well, yes, indeed. Of course, the report is about the economic cost, but one of the most glaring um, uh, pieces of information that have arisen for us is the, the, the sheer length of the journey of, I suppose, getting into a relationship and then getting out of it. So you have, in, within the study carried out by uh, Dr. Nata Devori and Caroline uh, Ford in, in NUIG, they outline it in three phases. One is 15 years in then an abusive relationship. The second is a sanctuary phase, which our frontline services are are there to meet, is 1.5 years. And then the uh, relocation and recovery phase can take up to four years. So that's an overall journey of about 20 years. And that's quite a shocking figure. Um, It makes sense, of course, now that we have a better understanding, of course, of control. And indeed, the way in which we can collude in in control when gaslighting, grooming, all of these things, we have much better understanding of the nature of abuse, the subtle nature of it. And part of the research, actually, uh, is another element of that, is that it focused on emotional abuse as a primary uh, form of uh, control in addition to financial control. Now, as as I said in the introduction, you don't quantify here the state costs in areas like housing and in areas like um, domestic violence services, the provision of services. But how do you arrive at a figure of of in excess of 100,000? Well, uh, the researchers uh, took a small sample group, and this is the first in Ireland of its kind, because heretofore we've relied on UK research. So essentially, they looked at several domains. One is healthcare, legal costs, lost income and productivity was a very high, the highest rate of loss, Um, expenses, debt, damage. Um, and so on, that over the course of, of, of a 20-year journey uh, in, through and out of abuse, it will be over €113,000 uh, uh, for a woman to take that journey. That's the cost. These are the personal costs to the survivors. Yeah, you, it, the, the research is based on in-depth interviews with 50 mm-hmm. women, but what, what, okay. what do you do with this research? How does it help your work? Well, I think the first thing to say is that, you know, this research is is analogous with international research. We had uh, similar findings of, of like 299 billion across Europe for violence against women came out from the European Institute of Gender Equality last week, for example. So what this means is that alongside what we what one might call the human rights or simply humane call to attend to the systemic violence against women and separately against children, that this is costing the state. And of course, money is usually a strong argument. I mean, from the point of view of Safe Ireland, and we've yet to, to go through all of this in, in great detail as things are changing rapidly in our sector, mm-hmm. is that we are making an argument that domestic violence should be front and centre in social policy, and we believe it should be funded at that level, and uh, central. To another, so it's a separate report, but sure. it really kind of ties in with what you're doing here. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we've heard that the state's response to domestic and sexual violence is often disparate and fractured. This is an audit, an external audit, conducted for the Department of Justice, finding disrespect and distrust between government departments uh, in responses to domestic, sexual and gender-based violence. What's the the consequence of that sort of lack of of organisation? Well, again, Safe Ireland, we we submitted our document, no going back to the auditors, and we commend them on this work. And we indeed commend the administration and Department of Justice on publishing this. This is a very forthright piece of work. 
Um, so it's a time to start again after COVID taught us so much about domestic violence, we all have a better understanding of it. And that is where we would start. We need to fundamentally understand the nature of domestic, sexual and gender-based violence and move from there. The fragmentation, we believe, is a result of domestic violence really being separated out. For example, it is in Tusla on the one hand, which is a central uh, state agency, as we know, separate from central government, while policy is injustice. And at the same token, other departments like housing, education and health all need to step up to the mark here. Okay. Um, and we need to provide a best practice frontline services, community skills. I mean, this is what COVID taught us. Community response is the way to go here. Mary McDermott, CEO of Safe Ireland. Thank you. There's a heat wave on the way, yes. Temperatures are forecast to rise into the high 20s by the end of the week and early next week. To tell us more, meteorologist Jerry Murphy of Met Aaron is with us. Morning, Jerry. It's pretty grey outside my window on Dublin's north side this morning. What's in store? Good morning, Gavin. Yes, well, the, the broader story is that we're in for some very nice summer weather as we go through the weekend. In the shorter term, though, for today and tomorrow, while it will be largely dry, there will be that bit more cloud around in places at times. But then as we move through Friday on through Saturday, Sunday especially, then good sunshine over the weekend and the temperatures climbing all the time. So for today and tomorrow, while the temperatures are raging between about 19 and 23 or 24 degrees, then we'll get up to a 25 on Friday and 27s or 28s in places then as we go through Saturday and Sunday. So pleasant warm weather in store for the weekend. And how long is the heat going to last? Well, really, the, the the weekend will give us the best of it. It will still stay warm in the early days of next week, possibly not quite as warm. And then in the middle of next week, there's a greater threat of some showers and somewhat cooler conditions at that stage. But certainly for the rest of this week, and especially over the weekend, some very pleasant summer sunshine in store. What about night time, Jerry? Yeah, well, the night time during the... During the um, warm periods of weather like this the nighttime can often cause some problems for people basically the temperatures at night will range between about 13 and 16 degrees so as you go through the weekend for saturday and sunday those temperatures at a minimum really maybe possibly 15 or 16 and that that's at, at the end of the night so for many places around midnight over the weekend the temperature would still be maybe 17 degrees at night uh, when they're retiring for the night so basically yes the, at the the caveat for the very warm weather is sometimes you can have uncomfortable conditions for some people at night and is there a breather in sight is there a which is there an end in sight a breather an end to the warm weather well, yes, as we head approach the middle of next week, the, the temperatures will drop back that bit as maybe some low pressure comes up and basically gives a greater threat of showers. I would like to point out that while we should all look forward to and certainly enjoy the sunshine, there are a few things that we'd really to be aware of in relation to the fact that the solar UV index will be very high. So people will need to take great care in the sun, stay in the shade and then water safety, of course, is always paramount in this sort of weather as well. Jerry, any idea what the rest of the summer will be like? Um, the rest is too far, far away to say, Gavin, I'm afraid. Uh, we can give uh, fairly decent accuracy out to a week and beyond that, the, the, the accuracy of the forecast decreases significantly. So it is the summer, so we would hope that the fine weather overall will continue. And when we had it in general, we've had a very good summer yeah. this year. But to go beyond to the middle of next week with that threat of showers is really uh, looking that little bit too far. <laughs> It's, it's not unprecedented to get warm weather, even warm as we're expecting this week. Where's this coming from? 
Well, basically, um, the we're, we're going to be under the influence of what we call the Azores High. Now, this is an area of high pressure, which is usually located down to the south of us and it contains tropical warm air. And once that pushes up over us, it means that this warm air settles over Ireland. And with the high pressure, the air moves very slowly. So the warm air stays over ourselves. The active weather systems stay out. And then day by day, as the high pressure sits over us, then it gets warmer and warmer. And that high pressure will be with us for the rest of this week, early next week, then possibly drifting away then in the middle of the week. Jerry, thank you. That's Jerry Murphy of Met Aaron. You've been listening to a selection of stories from this week's Morning Ireland.